Welcome to the Red Bank Rum Runner. I'm your host, Anthony Jude Sotaro. William Hathaway Sr. was able to use his position of power locally to help get local laws passed, allowing gambling to resume at Mammoth Park horse race track as part of the deal in 1892. Had a big parade in Atlantic Highlands when they opened the new section of the railroad. And wouldn't you know, they didn't even want us Italians in the parade. Hmm? We built the thing and they didn't want us to celebrate the opening of it. They were spitting at us right there in the streets as we marched. And so, as they worked out the finer points of the Hathaway deal, and in an effort of good faith to the Italians, and as retribution for the lynchings of those innocent Italians in New Orleans. Hmm? The United States decided to give us a day of celebration to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the Italian explorer Christopher Columbus' discovery of America. Columbus Day, they'd call it. They then had this Francis Philby write a pledge for every one of us Italians to read in the program so that we could pledge our allegiance to the United States of America so as not to confuse our loyalty as we celebrated the discovery of the new world by an Italian. And so they released the rest of my uncles and cousins that were still locked up. Things were looking not so bad again. And then the smallpox outbreak. That's right. It started over on the other side of a few cases here and there. Then, one day, two of my cousins 
not feeling too good, you know. And so they quarantined the whole colony, hmm? all of us, kept us under surveillance for months, out of what they deemed as health precautions. My cousin, Frank, was just in his teens. They made him sit alone in an empty house. His parents, my aunt and uncle, were acting as nurses for patients. Hmm? They had to prepare their own son's body for burial. It was the most terrible thing. I was just a, a boy. But there are some things you just never forget. His parents were the only ones allowed to care for him. And after his body, after he passed, they even had to place their own son's body into the coffin and the enclosing box. Mr. Nant was kind enough. Let us use his old hearse, the one he uses for burials for persons with contagious diseases. And so, the burial for my cousin was private. Family came down from New York. Were told by the health inspector, Walsh, not to attend the funeral. And so, those four lonely wagons headed out over Cooper's Bridge to Mount Olivet Cemetery. And he was laid to rest. Imagine that. After the year that we'd been through, hmm, finally had everyone home again. And then to lose my cousin so young. They wouldn't even let us be there for him. But that wasn't enough, you know. They kept up the quarantine on us for months. Made us burn all our rags, our livelihood, everything up in flames. Hmm? kept us 
from traveling to Jersey City or New York. We were isolated. It was all for our own protection, they said. We were underfoot to them as they came and went to check on us every day. Wanted to make sure nothing went wrong while they were working out the fine details of the deal. They finally worked out the deal with William Hathaway in the new year, that following year, after that first Columbus Day in 1892, and they planned the big celebration here for the spring of 1893. They had an idea to put a 135 foot flagpole at the top of the twin lighthouses over on the Nelson and sail it high above the eastern seaboard. Hmm? Call it the Liberty Pole. The reason for the flag being so high was twofold. It would be a symbol for those coming over to the New World by boat as it would be the first thing in sight for ships as they would come over the horizon. But hidden in plain sight was the fact that the oversized American flag waving its stars and stripes flying high above the horizon would also serve as a signal for the captains of our ships, a signal for them to head south and avoid the Coast Guard at Sandy Hook, those navasing lighthouses and the bay to head past the magical pleasure paradise at Highland Beach and down to the luxurious gardens of Eden to Deal Beach. It was late April that year when they had the Liberty Pole dedication and well, there certainly was April showers that day, on and off. And it was so overcast that morning that it appeared the top of the flagpole was piercing the clouds above. That surely it didn't stop all those people on foot and in their carriages that were lining up 
all the way down the riverside drive up to the Navasing lights and all along those roads outside of highlands cheering on the procession as they made their way down to the ceremonies. They had special excursion trains that day that ran from New York as well as the Albertina chartering people for the celebrations. They had giant ships hmm, out below the highlands in the bay off the Sandy Hook. You could hardly see through the fog. The Miandemona was out there. Hmm? That funny-looking battleship. They had. Hmm? It looked like it was uh, half-sunken already into the sea. And so, with much fanfare, everyone arose and said that Pledge of Allegiance during the dedication of the Liberty Pole that day, out loud together for the first time up there on the hill, hmm? on the top, as we dedicated that flag and that pole up there at that magnificent castle amongst the sky and the clouds. Those Navasing lights. Oh, and you could hear those cannons as those fireworks, as they shot off and exploded next to your ears once they raised the flag and the crowd finished the Pledge of Allegiance. Couldn't hear anything except a boom after boom for four or five minutes straight. They had a 21 gun salute, followed by a small mysterious cannon that they fired from atop of the hillside, right behind where everyone was standing, and it scared the dickens out of everyone. And there were, there were much to celebrate that day. Hmm? And things were looking up. We had finally scored a victory against the temperance movement. That same day, that they celebrated, hmm? that we had that celebration and dedication of the Liberty Pole up there at Navasink Lights. They dedicated something to William Hathaway Sr. as well hmm? for his role in making all of this happen. That's right. We had him carved 
a beautiful marble monument for his family mausoleum dedicated to him in honor of his family that same day this beautiful Italian marble monument it was spectacular hmm? a seven foot tall statue of William Hathaway and they had all sorts of beautiful inscriptions an inscription on the south side that said faithful to God and my country and then they had another inscription on the east side with beautiful flowers around saying, he shall come again with rejoicing, bringing his she's with him. They had an inscription that was placed on the west side of the monument. It was a patriot and successful businessman. We opened the railroad later that year from Highlands to Highland Beach that summer Mammoth Park Horse Racetrack was open again we were bringing alcohol in from every which way down to the Jersey Shore the ocean down at Deal Beach and up to Hathaway's using the rail line to bring it to Mammoth Park, around the Sandy Hook, past Highland Beach, and up the river to Red Bank, and down the rail line again the other way. It didn't matter. The summer of 1893 was proving to be one of the wettest and wildest summers the Jersey Shore had ever seen. That wet and wild summer didn't last too long, however, as the entire financial system in the country collapsed with the panic of 1893 that year. And the laws were passed locally that shuddered Mammoth Park horse race track for good. Well, the next 50 years at least, the war was over. The temperance movement had won. They turned the very tip of the finger at Sandy Hook into Fort Hancock in 1894 stopped our ships from coming up that way, did what they could to stop us from coming in from everywhere else as well. But they kept at it, even as the temperance movement was proving victorious. They were hunting us, trying to make us stop. And at the turn of the century, they fenced off 
that whole stretch of the coast, made it into a fort. They brought in all these cannons to shoot down on ships if they tried to come in. And so, people just became more discreet with their illicit activities. And so, they continued remodeling Hathaway House and building out that luxurious garden of Eden down at Eel Beach in hopes that the Mammoth Park horse race track would reopen soon. And we figured out ways to continue our bootlegging along the Jersey Shore. And a constant battle for the social and moral future of our nation continued to be waged on the streets and in the open waters all along the Jersey Shore. And the men in power were able to keep changing the laws on us. Hmm? kept making it more and more difficult and too expensive for us to obtain licenses for our bottling and shipping companies, for our own businesses that we put our blood, sweat, and tears into. Hmm? We sailed an ocean to get here. uprooted the whole family, brothers, sisters, torn apart to ensure we fulfilled Don Vito's plan. And these businesses were legitimately growing. Hmm? We were making alcohol all ourselves. And they didn't like it. And so, we were back to hiding and smuggling our goods again. They didn't want us to be successful. They didn't like that we were already able to grow, manufacture, and produce, ship, sell our products all by ourselves. Hmm? We didn't need them, the middleman. And so, they put a stop to it. They kept putting us out of business, and we kept going right back at it. We were making our own moonshine. Hmm? The famous Mammoth Beach Rum. We were also making cider and beer as well. That was being sold in stores around New York and Brooklyn. And then we started making vodka, which everyone loved. And then whiskey after that. Dr. Kinmont, Hugh Kinmont, helped us out in the beginning 
by creating a different blend of rye. That was pretty good, if I do say so myself. Dr. Eller, Doc, was another doctor here at Red Bank, created many recipes over the years to help keep us in business. Hmm? Keep them running smooth, if you know what I mean. But those winters, they seem to be getting colder and colder on us. And as the calendar started to change into the new year in 1903, it had already been so cold that the Shrewsbury River had been frozen over for weeks. The whole world we lived on coal. Steam heat at the time. When it's that cold for the long, hmm, you see, it's that early in the season. Well, Old coal yards were empty before the feast of the seven fishes. We had never experienced a year that cold in the 15 years we had lived on the shores of the Red Bank. People, they started going mad. The elders, Tom, Calandrillo, they were sending us out at night. Myself, Giovanni DeMarco, Giovanni Calandrillo, the three G's, three Giovannis they called us. They sent us out to scavenge and hunt for coal food, clothes, whatever we were told to do, we did. That was just the way it was. We pledged oaths of faith and loyalty to each other and to our families above anything else in the world. And we would be bound together in this world and beyond. We were told that was how it needed to be, to keep us safe. Then, one night, we had a plan to hit the freight train that would be supplying all the coal warehouses as it was coming into the freight yard at the depot in Red Bank. If we had waited in line for our turn to get the coal in the coal yard, we'd be standing on the streets all night, rubbing our knuckles and our knickers together to keep warm. 
And we sure as hell wouldn't have been leaving there with coal in our hands. That's for sure. The segments of the world had all the coal spoken for already. I know my family would be freezing with what little firewood we had left. I could see it in their faces. Their eyes, they were so pale, full of sadness and shame. I knew they couldn't do anything about the situation. They were just as helpless as John Calandrello's wife and unborn daughter, Rosa, as she stood by the fireplace. All bonded. And so, one Saturday, just after the new year, as the freight trains came in, it was about seven o'clock that night. We knew that they stopped the freight trains there so that they could add freight cars to it before bringing it up further north. And that's not all. At the corner of Broad and Monmouth Streets in Redfield, there was a red lantern, which is an alarm they would light when there was police trouble in this area. So, we decided to go ahead with our plan anyway. We waited for the right when the train stopped and was waiting for its signal to turn green. Once the freight cars were all over, so you see, they had the freight cars out at the depot, in front of the safe house, there on Morford Place. Once the freight cars were all loaded, so you see, the freight cars were out at the depot, in front of the safe house, there on Morford Place. They had half the freight cars on the northbound track, and half the cars on the southbound. We took one of the freight cars on the northbound track and released the brake as they had it stopped to add those extra cars on. The freight car began to slip down the train tracks slowly at first until it picked up speed and slammed right into all the other freight cars. The car toppled over onto the southbound track, and two other freight cars became dislodged from the train. They said the brakeman on that freight car that toppled over had jumped as the car careened over and escaped unhurt. But 
We had already made sure he wasn't on the freight car when we released it. Because he was preoccupied with a little drink from one of nature's medicine bottles we had concocted. It was a sight, though. The freight car that toppled over flipped upside down and with its door sighing wide open. You could hear there was a stallion in that cart, hmm? as he was hooting and a-hollering. They sent the man down there with a lantern into the freight car that was laying there upside down with its door wide open and he saw there was a horse in there and wouldn't you know but that horse was standing right side up unbelievable and so while all this ruckus was about with the train Everyone running every which way. The three Giovannis. We made our way over to the coal cars as fast as we could. And it was with John's guidance and the use of the acetylene torch he had borrowed from his father that we cut open one of those freight cars and removed a whole carload of coal. We had the family to keep warm, to feed, so you grabbed as much coal as you could stuff between the seams of your shirt and your hat. Stuffed the whole inside of my pockets with those black diamonds. Hmm? Then we ran as fast as we could down to the colony. As we uh, divvied up the coal, John Calandrello's father, Tom, got angry with John said it wasn't enough, that we needed to go back and get more coal, that we were in the middle of it now, and that this was our only chance until God knows when. It was the first week of January, just at the beginning of winter. So, we went back out, up the hill, towards the train wreck on Morford. When we got there, officers were already grabbing others that were starting to loot the train. So after a time, and they heeded the bay. We headed back down 
towards the colony. Only this time we had no black loot of black diamonds to show for our efforts. John's father Tom got very angry with us. Started yelling. Started to get physical between the father and son. I jumped in to stand with John Calendrell against his father. But somehow, in the midst of the chaos and confusion, we ended up standing toe to toe and going blow for blow with one another. John had grabbed a hammer and struck me across the shoulder. I tripped and hit my head and was down on the ground. When my father stepped in to protect me from John, as he lunged towards me on the ground. When I came to, we were on the way, on our way to Long Branch Hospital. It all happened so fast. Just a sickle asking us questions as my mind went blank my ears ringing heart throbbing head spinning my father lying there looking motionless with his mouth From the back of his head, as his body started twitching, he is not dead yet, but I know he soon will be. We were moving as fast as we But we couldn't travel by train because of the wreck. My father, he started to slip in and out of this life and cross over to the next. He broke the oath of silence. Like I am doing now. 
that oath that we all shared together. My father, he broke that to try and save me by telling Justice Sickles what had happened. That John Calandrello had struck him with a hammer. I don't remember much after that. After they took me to the hospital. Came back for my father. I was told at some point by a nurse I had come to finally, and as they were wheeling me, my father, he was dead. I couldn't believe it. My father, he was always there for us, and now. Because of me. I remember the funeral at St. James Church. All those people, all those faces. I didn't realize my father knew so many people. It seemed to be never ending as they kept coming out of the woodworks to pay their respects and strangers so many strangers from New York Jersey City and beyond come to bear witness to his death I have never seen so many people in one place before Oh, with somber faces, dressed in black. The next thing I remember is being at the family farm back home in Susana and not feeling secure about going back to America and the Red Bank anymore. My mother... And I talked about it, how this place was no longer a safe place for us. It's not that there was uh, some ulterior motive or distrust from the people in our town of Sassano that were in the Red Bank, but you'll never know who knows who. And someone could have made mention to someone else. Hmm? Someone could have uh, overheard something that my father said. Which could have put us in a difficult position. It was all over the papers. John Calandrello 
was a wanted man, a fugitive. He was running around stealing clothes and food to keep warm for weeks in that freezing cold to avoid me, avoid the police. Everyone was looking for him. There was a young officer there that night with Justice Eagles when he took my father's statement. A very smart and eager man. Jacob Rue. That's right. J.B. they called him. He had heard what my father had said before he passed, about John Calandrello striking my father on the back of the head with a hammer. Read about it again in the papers. Was looking for me the moment I stepped foot back into town. Wanted to hear it from me, wanted my help in finding and apprehending the man who had just murdered my father. But I wouldn't speak. I would never break my own. Not in my mortal life. J.B. never understood that part of it. Hmm? The silence. He would make it his life's work trying to apprehend John Calandrello in my father's name to apprehend his killer. But they could never pin my father's murder on John Calandrillo, not without my cooperation, which I would never give. After my mind cleared, there was only one I wanted vengeance so I went after John Calendrell hmm? followed him one night hmm? when he was out on the run for his father shot at but they stopped me, John DeMarco, and John Calandrello's father, Tom. They calmed me down, brought John and I face to face. And then we stood there, 
face to face, staring into the eyes of my father's killer. And so they held him up and let me have one good shot at him. And when he stood up, we stood face to face again. And we embraced as we wept. And then I watched as John Calendrello took an oath that he would vow to protect me and my family from that day forward at all costs for as long as he lived and that he would make it known that I was untouchable and that anyone were to mess with me or my family they would have to answer to him and that there would be consequences. And that was the last time we ever spoke of it. Until now. When I'm telling you And so, we were never truly safe, not from each other. Someone was always coming for us. We were not free. We had traded one prison for another. And the three Giovannis rode again as they said. One night, a few years after my father passed, they came after me, burned my tiny house down one night that I was living in, down in the colony, before I had the safe house on Morford Place. Not that I had much at the time, I lived a simple life down here in the colony. After my father passed, when I was alone here all those years. But I lost everything I had when they burned my little house down. Everything. They were trying to send me a message, starting from scratch yet again. I probably should have left Red Bank by then. Hmm? 
But I didn't. I was so angry when they burned me out. I felt the anger inside me. I wanted to lash out. But my uncles, cousins, they wouldn't allow it. They pulled me back from the brink of violence when all I could see was red and insisted they said to focus on something else. Hmm? Focus on trying to find a way for us to get by and stay alive in this world where we were constantly at war. That's when I moved to the safe house on Morford Place. John Calandrello's wife, Rosa, had two sisters, Antoinette and Mary. John DeMarco had married Mary first, years before, when they were young, when we first got here. And then I went back home to Susano for the final time and married Antoinette, solidifying the three G's. Hmm? I used the insurance money I had from the fire, every penny I had saved since I was shining shoes for Uncle Giuseppe. And I bought that safe house on Morford Place. It was the perfect spot, you see. A crucial and strategic location for our whole bootlegging operation as we expanded. They needed someone to operate the safe house. Someone they could trust. That was loyal. Someone that was untouchable. That could take care of things if they needed being taken care of. You know what I mean? I was a key cog in the whole operation. Made sure things moved at the right pace. Like the bass drum in a marching band. The role of the safe house had many purposes, but also one more. A place where they could bring their families to escape for a while if necessary. A place where they can get away from the dangerous life beyond the hedges and live in secrecy if need be, until the storm had passed. The house on Morford Place was directly behind the passenger and freight depot of the Central Rail Line. We could receive shipments from anywhere in the state and then direct them anywhere we wanted to go.
we had a fleet of trucks and wagons at our disposal. If we could get it into Red Bank on truck, then we could move it to the depot. And from there, it was ours. We were an unstoppable force. My role only grew as I got more involved. We had the West End Hotel directly next door to the house. Men of all walks of life could easily slip in and out between the hedges. There were people coming and going in all directions of the house at all times of the day. When Eisner's factory would open in the morning, and close at the end of the day. Every day, thousands and thousands of people passed the house. The safe house was the hub for our entire operation. Importing all those cases of alcohol from Canada and shipping it down to Red and we, my role, well, I just had to keep quiet, look the other way, maybe leave a door unlocked here or there, make sure the freight cars left the station at a certain time. I was the gatekeeper for the whole damn thing. Men on both sides needed me in their good graces. I stood out front of the house, trimming the hedges 